Futuro Media and PRX, It's In The Thick, a podcast about politics, race, and culture. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And Maria, so great to have you back. And I'm so happy to be back. Yes, I love New York. I love sleeping in my bed. You know, I've been away doing some really special challenging reporting. Yeah. And dear listener, I can't share the details yet, but you'll know soon. So just stay tuned. And before we get to today's special show, we do want to take a moment to acknowledge some pretty devastating news. Yeah, yeah. Early on Monday morning, a powerful 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck Turkey and Syria, mm-hmm. leaving Thousands of people dead, Dios mio, and so many more injured. As rescue efforts continue, officials are continuing to update the death toll. And many victims have been using social media to call for help and to track down loved ones. So this earthquake was one of the strongest to hit the region in more than 100 years. And it was followed by dozens of powerful aftershocks including another 7.5 magnitude earthquake. And the videos and the photos of the destruction have been so devastating to see, just heartbreaking. And our hearts are with everyone affected. Well, we're sending a lot of love and light to all of the people and families in Turkey and Syria. And I'm just really thankful that In the Thick exists because it really does feel like a safe space to process difficult news like this. True, true. And we want you, dear listener, and all of our guests to feel really welcome because, you know, we're familia. And this is a place where we want, when we want people who join us, you, dear listener, to be your authentic self, to cry, to laugh, to learn. And I'm really happy to be back on ITT because we're doing something special for all of our listeners. (laughs) That's right, Maria. So if you don't know, For all you In the Thick listener nerds out there, February 11th, 2016, this coming weekend, will mark seven years since In the Thick's very first episode. It's the seven-year itch. I was a young man. No, 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 I'm just kidding. Um, It's been a great seven years, and we wanted to just take a pause and acknowledge the seven years. So starting today... For the next eight weeks, we're going to celebrate this incredible milestone by sharing the best of In the Thick. So every week, we're going to revisit one of our favorite episodes. And let me tell you, it's not easy to choose from over 600 episodes. So we're going to go all the way back in the vault to pull out some of our most iconic, fun, and powerful episodes that over the years really have shaped ITT into the show that it is today. Okay, today's episode takes us all the way back to 2016. You remember when Twitter was cool. Oh, yeah. And also when In the Thick first started, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And this show that you're about to hear, Maria, I wasn't even officially a (laughs) co-host. Like, that's how old the show is. Yeah. So in this episode... Maria, you talk with our OG all-star, Terrell Jermaine Starr, who's now host of the Black Diplomats podcast, along with Zach Cheney Rice, a features writer for New York Magazine, and Tracy Miras, who's the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor of Law at Yale University. And this is the episode we're always bringing up on In the Thick because it really gets fucking real about white supremacy. 
Yeah. And so, as I said, ITT is a space that has allowed us to process and it's carried us through some pretty pivotal moments in our country and in the world from the nationwide uprising, the movement for racial justice and black lives to multiple national elections. Let's not forget, ITT was created in the first place during the 2016 election year because we saw from the very beginning the threat that was posed by Donald Trump Mm. and his harmful racist rhetoric, which obviously continues to manifest even today in 2023. Mm -hmm. And this episode got into another issue that's been ongoing, which is gun violence, police violence. When we recorded this episode, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, two black men, had been shot and killed by police officers. And just in the last month, In the Thick has been covering the police killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee. And we're seeing those same themes show up here about how it's not always white police officers who inflict violence. Mm -hmm. In Tyree's case, all the officers were black. And what Terrell says in this episode has basically been the through line of In the Thick for the last Mm -hmm. seven years. Right. We know this, right? You don't have to be white to perpetuate white supremacy. And this episode is also powerful and it's stayed with me because it's basically the birth, yes, of that really important part of our show, the temperature check. Yeah. Because Terrell was so open about his mental health and he showed us that as journalists, it really is important to ground ourselves in our emotions, to be able to be vulnerable. And so because of Terrell, we've been doing that temperature check since forever here on In the Thick. And it's something that, honestly, I've been doing a lot of, just taking stock of my emotional health Mm -hmm. because of the reporting that I've been doing these last few weeks. All right. So without further ado, let's kick it. (laughs) Let's kick it off. Best of In the Thick. Seven years. Series that we're going to be running for the next two months. We're going to start by sharing this episode from July 13th, 2016. Enjoy. Any person has the ability to participate in white supremacy. A black police officer can participate in a white supremacist system that hurts black people. A Latino person can participate in a white supremacist construct, which is American policing, and hurt Latinos. Hey, welcome to In the Thick. This is the podcast about politics and the race to the White House in 2016. And we are the show that examines this week's political stories through a diverse lens with different perspectives. I'm your host, Maria Hinojosa. Joining us this week in our Harlem studio is Terrell Germain Starr. He's national political correspondent for Fusion. Hey, Terrell. Hey, doing? Good, good. Also in our studio, Zach Cheney Rice. He's senior staff writer at Mike. Hey, Zach. Hello. And joining us from New Haven, Connecticut, is Tracy Mears. She's a professor at Yale Law School and a former member of President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Hey, Tracy. Hey, everybody. Good to have all of you. All right, so there's a lot to get to this week, but before we get to Bernie's endorsement of Hillary, I want to discuss the shootings that have shaken Baton Rouge, Minnesota, Dallas, and the rest of the country this past week. It's really been a tough week for all of us. I think all of us are processing this in a different way. So 
I just want to go around and get a reaction. Tracy, what's been going on? Oh, it's really hard, Maria, I have to say, because I have been working on trying to infuse fairness in policing for the last decade in my work with President Obama's task force. And yet, as an African-American woman and a parent, I have the feelings that you have. I watch my students who are wondering what to do. And I'm feeling like now more than ever, we have to be committed to the ideas that we've been trying to push for the last two years. All right, Zach, what's going on for you? Yeah, something we don't talk about a lot is sort of the emotional toll that, you know, seeing this, not just like this happening, but, you know, it's a, the, the footage of these incidents is so widely available now. Um, it's easy to scroll through your social media feed and kind of be confronted with an autoplayed Foot video footage of a, of a of a black person being shot these days, and I mean that takes a toll on people. And I count myself among them. It's it's devastating. Jerrell, what are you doing? Like, how are you processing this? I'm going to see my psychiatrist today. I am a big advocate of mental health, and I've been in therapy for two years, dealing with a lot of my own personal issues. I take anxiety uh, medication in order to deal with it, and so today was one of those days where I really felt like I needed to get some professional help, and I'm very fortunate to have that. But these shootings is just an extension of trauma that I experienced in the past. I just want to thank you for what you just said, because um, I also have a therapist um, and and I talk about it a lot. And the mental health issue is one. you're right. We just don't. It takes a toll. All of us are feeling this. What do you think is the best way that we can kind of maintain ourselves back on track? Um, I mean, what are you doing apart from like seeing your therapist in terms of like now as an American journalist, where are you saying, okay, this is where I want to focus my work and my attention right now for you right now, Terrell. The most important thing for me to do right now is to definitely make sure that I talk about specific issues behind why these shootings are taking place. We really have to challenge how cops are punished if they do not fully obey the laws that they're supposed to follow. Because right now, the only thing that a police officer has to say in order to use deadly force is to say, I felt this person made me feel like this. And that's all that's required to shoot and kill us. Zach, how do we process the deaths of Philando Castile and uh, Alton Sterling in the wake of what happened in Dallas? You know, obviously, all three are incredible, incredible tragedies. A lot of folks, especially conservative pundits and media, will kind of wrongfully attribute you know, fault around the Dallas shooting, for example, to a war on cops, quote unquote. And I think what's really, really important is maintaining historical perspective. You see a lot of people speak about these as if they are existing in a vacuum without kind of taking into account what were police originally established to do. What Zach said is so critical. I want to acknowledge the point about police accountability for use of force, but it's a mistake to focus on police of use of force only in the context of people being shot. It's mm-hmm. a police use of force when people are tased. It's a police use of force when you're stopped and handcuffed. And we do too much of it. And part of the reason why we do too much of it is because we use police to enforce a whole myriad of violations And we use the police to enforce those violations through the criminal justice system. So do we really need police to be arresting people for having a broken taillight? Do we really need to have warrants outstanding for people's arrests when, as was the case in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, someone's grass is over the prescribed um, 
inch level, like I think it was two inches. We, we need to think about how we're using police, what police are for. And the dominant narrative in policing is public safety, that is reducing crime, rather than thinking about public security, that is not only making sure that people are safe from each other, but also safe from government overreach. The Dallas Police Department is, um, it appears, one of the better police departments. That's right. This particular word, which I think we're going to hear a lot more of, which is de-escalation. Many of its officers actually posing with some of the protesters and posting this stuff. President Obama actually referenced the model behavior of the Dallas PD during his eulogy on Tuesday. And in the process, we've been reminded that the Dallas Police Department has been at the forefront of improving relations between police and the community. The murder rate here has fallen. Complaints of excessive force have been cut by 64%. So when you talk about focusing on rightful policing as opposed to lawful or effective policing, tell us what that means. And if you think that that kind of conversation is actually going to take off, now even more so than before. One way of thinking about effective policing is to go back what Zach said. What are police for? If all police are for is crime reduction, which is not what we've thought that they were for historically, then you can get into a world in which you're arguing about the costs and balances of aggressive policing in the context of potential violation of rights. And you want to talk about lawful policing, you could say, well, as long as what police are doing is lawful, that is, you know, they haven't violated anyone's rights because they had the right to use deadly force, for example, going back to what Terrell was saying, you'll see that there's a big gap between those two things and what the public wants. And what the public wants is to be treated uh, like they count. They want fair policing. And there's a lot of research and, and theory that shows what police should be doing in that context. There's a way to do this right. I think true reform has to come down to a moral issue. Remember in the Justice Department's report on Ferguson, the city was profiting from pulling people over. Right. So even if we reimagine what policing means, we have to realize that this is a profit-making machine mm -hmm. for people. And they marginalize people who don't have the ability to defend themselves. So it's a very predatorial um, money-making um, organ of the state. And so if officials really want to engage in serious reform, that means that they're not, they have to stop looking at policing as a money-making mechanism. And if we can't get beyond that point, then we're really going to see the extent to which people really want to see a different form of policing. I feel like we're just three, two years into this movement of Black Lives Matter, right? If we think about the civil rights movement, that period was about 12 to 14 years. We're about two years into ours. And we have to think, we, as far as what the end results of what reform is going to look like and how our policing system is going to look 15 years from now, I think it's pretty hard to tell because I, the people, activists, are starting to understand their political currency and their value and their ability to push these issues. Because remember, Back during 2008, when President Obama was running for office, policing was not a talking point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so now it is. Right. And so Hillary Clinton, for example, and with Bernie Sanders before he eventually had to uh, support uh, the former secretary of state is being forced to address these issues in ways that they otherwise wouldn't have had it not been for social media, had it not been for the Mike Browns of the world. And so what the potential of proper um, policies and reforms will look like, that remains to be seen. Tracy, jump into your, your reaction to what Terrell is, is saying. 
I think that he's right. The The hesitation you hear in my voice is that, you know, my hope is that people understand what the what I understand the movement to be talking about, which is we're focusing on policing, but this isn't just about police reform. We're at a moment where we're literally re-understanding citizenship in this country. And if you think about the ways in which there has been a concentrated group of people left behind over time, um, over hundreds of years, this is not just about a police responsibility to do right. This is about the ways in which we understand the organization of local government. That brings up Terrell's point about, you know, using police as a money-making arm, but also the ways in which especially marginalized people of color are able to participate in national politics. And this isn't just about policing. Policing are just the leading edge. So it seems like there's this narrative around the shooting that's basically like it's Black Lives Matter on one side and white cops on the other. And and we're simplifying here. But actually, in these particular circumstances, we had a Latino cop shooting an African-American man in Minnesota. In Dallas, we had an African-American man who explicitly claimed that he wanted to kill white people, ending up shooting a Latino officer among his five victims. What I'm wondering is this. Is it important to really talk about this nuance? Or by getting into these particularities, are we actually distracting ourselves? Any person has the ability to participate in white supremacy. A black police officer can participate in a white supremacist system that hurts black people. A Latino person can participate in a white supremacist construct, which is American policing, and hurt Latinos. So I think the particularities are kind of getting getting a bit into the weeds, and so it doesn't matter what the race is. It's about what they represent. I think the particularities actually make the point about this being about power and lack of citizenship. So I'm going to push back on you a little bit, Terrell. If you've seen Brian Stevenson's amazing work at the Equal Justice Initiative, where he has building a monument to those who have been lynched over time, primarily in the South, and those people were killed because they failed to respect adequately whiteness. So let's say we are stopped, you know, you stop killing us. It is still true that police will be using force against people of color disproportionately, people who are marginalized in all sorts of ways, um, LGBTQ people and trans people, disproportionately, because of the way we have constructed a narrative about what police are for and the ways in which we've constructed a narrative about the form of the way government is going to operate in this country. There's been community disinvestment that supports the kind of policing that we do, that actually supports this reliance on police to do everything. They're all connected. I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. I think there's a particular outlook and a focus that the two of us have. Personally, I don't care what somebody thinks about my life. I just need to know that if you take it, there will be a punishment for it. I think that we live in a society where people's racial dynamics are just so screwed up that there's going to be somebody who's going to look at me and think that I'm less valuable. But what I want to happen is what's not taking place is that if someone kills me, someone uses their authority, then they can be punished for it and they know that they can be punished for it. All right. So so now there was something that actually gave me hope that stood out was when Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton um, had this reaction to the shooting in Falcon Heights, and he expressly talked about racism. Would this have happened if those uh, passengers, the driver and the passenger were white? I don't think it would have. 
So I'm forced to confront, and I think all of us in Minnesota are forced to confront, that this, this kind of uh, racism exists, and that it's incumbent upon all of us to vow that we're going to do whatever we can to see that it doesn't happen, it doesn't continue to happen. You know, when we were talking about our show, I actually said to my producer, you know, like, this is really hard to say because we're all in such a place of tragedy, but could this be a place where we're like learning a lesson? And and we actually use it to, yeah, get better. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Governor Dayton's comments say something very, very important and specific, which is that we are finally forcing politicians who are traditionally some of the most kind of morally lagging folk, you know, in kind of the political system. These are people who are who have to please everybody. Their mandate is they are professional compromisers, and that is often at the expense of um, speaking the truth and speaking, acknowledging truths that the rest of us have frankly known for decades. This is not new to, you know, any person in this room that that person, this would have gone, this would have gone differently if the driver was white. And the fact that we're making politicians talk about it now indicates that this has now become a politically advantageous issue for them to acknowledge and speak about. And that's encouraging on one level. Um, because it makes it, it ensures that the rest of us like keep talking about it. So Zach just maybe basically took my like, oh, your point of hope. Mm. I mean, it is hopeful. I'm, I, 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 <laughs> maybe I'm, not so I'm much. I'm encouraged by it. I'm not convinced it'll last. I'm not convinced how sincere it is, um, or how much it's kind of reliant on the mandates that people like people elected to political office face, which is to get reelected. Um, uh, okay. So uh, I'm 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 cautious. I'm cautiously optimistic. You too, Terrell. I, I would have to agree with Zach. I'm cautiously optimistic because every once in a while you will get someone who will make a statement like this. But ultimately, what you want to see is that person leading the way with real policy and change, right? Because I think that's the first step. Uh, I want to. I would like to see someone like him challenge um, police unions, right? really bring them to the core. Because we have to remember, too, that this country, when it was conceived, it never conceived anyone who was not white as a full person. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So that's that's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. When we think about policing, when we think about any type of law enforcement, the attitudes with which that law enforcement agency was to carry out its duties was never designed to look at black people or anybody who was not white as a full human being. They were slaves. And that's the reason why I always push back against this narrative of reading the Constitution as the founders read it. The founders own people who look like us, okay? (laughs) And so I think that if you do not look at history from that outlook, then you're not going to get to the genesis of why we're experiencing all this racial trauma that we're doing right now. So again, to to take it to another level of complexity, actually on Fusion, um, there was a video that talked specifically about the killings of Latinos by police officers. And the fact that that there has been very little protest. And and what does this mean? I think this goes back to a point we addressed earlier was that we do ourselves no favors by eliminating the nuance of this conversation. I'm a Californian. We brought up EJI, Equal Justice Initiative, before, which is a Alabama-based kind of civil rights organization. And I actually have a friend who worked there. So I visited and saw some of the lynching monument work that they're doing. And kind of like as an offhanded joke, I was like, you see how you see how these lynchings are concentrated in the South. It's kind of like a subtle jab at the South. And my friend's response was, y'all in California were, were lynching Mexicans for centuries, for a very, very long time. There are all these histories that kind of yeah. like play into... The untold story the of un- lynchings of Mexicans. untold stories, exactly. Um, it's like a check to me. I, I recently reported on the story of Pedro Villanueva, who was shot by police in Fullerton, California, 
um, sparking protest this weekend in Santa Ana against the California Highway Patrol, also not covered that heavily by the media. Um, indigenous people in this country last year were killed mm-hmm. at the same rate by police as black people. Mm-hmm. Um, this does not mean that one needs to be privileged over the other. Right. One needs to or should be spoken about more or addressed more seriously or intently right. than another. It just makes us, it, it, it goes back to kind of like, back to the question of like, what do we, what role do we want police to play in our lives? And how has that disproportionately impacted us as different people, different races historically? And where do we move forward from there? From Futuro Media and PRX, Latino Rebels Radio is an award-winning OG Latino podcast covering stories of the Latino experience that matter in the United States, the Caribbean, Central America, South America, and even parts of the universe. Lo que sea. Created for, about, and by Latinos. Join us every Thursday by subscribing to Latino Rebels Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Let's zoom out for a little bit now and look at the larger political climate that um, is surrounding what's been going on in our country. Bernie Sanders, big news, finally endorsing Hillary Clinton on Tuesday. Um, So she has a united front now. But does this mean that Hillary is actually going to start confronting the issue of police brutality more head on and and jumping in? As far as um, Hillary Clinton's role in addressing these issues, I am I have a big question mark. I'm not sure it's going to change much at all. Much of the police reform is going to take place. It's going to be state by state. I'm not sure that she'll mm-hmm. be able to use her 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 position in the White House to change what's going on in Ferguson or at California or Florida or Chicago or elsewhere. I think that she won't do anything more than what Obama does. If a shooting takes place, there's going to be a task force. And I appreciate the power of task forces, but task forces tend to recommend they don't actually make um, substantial changes to laws. So... I don't see I see her role being extremely marginal, um, maybe a little bit more than Obama, but not much. Just two quick things about Hillary Clinton that, that I think she could or, or might do. One is she had a much stronger position than Bernie Sanders did on guns. Absolutely. And after the Conyers led sit in on Congress, the NRA's support and power in Congress is cracking. The Dallas uh, mayor made clear that the investigation of the sniper there was hindered by Texas's open carry laws. I think it's possible um, that there could be some um, much more prominent discussion of guns in this election than we've seen before. That's one. And then two, with respect to the federal government's, you know, power over uh, what's happening in localities, it's true that, you know, what presidents can do are uh, convened task force, but the Department of Justice has the Office of Justice Programs, which gives literally billions of dollars to state and local governments in terms of, you know, how to conduct the latest approaches in police reform and the like. And I suspect that um, she'll leverage that too. It really seemed that Bernie never truly was able to win over um, African-American voters on a massive scale. Terrell, you actually wrote an article this week that's titled How Bernie Sanders Lost Black Voters. So what happened? One of the things that people, particularly Bernie Sanders, could not really articulate was that in a Democratic primary, you cannot win the nomination without black people. 
You just can't. And I think Bernie Sanders, when he ran, he came from this kind of liberal socialist mindset that did not center how black people or non-white people would be able to participate in this revolution, right? And so black people in his campaign felt like they had a hard time getting him to appreciate black voters. He was very radical when it talks about an economic overhaul, but very moderate when it comes to police reform and reparations. And so he came across as a, to me, as a pseudo uh, revolutionary, he, he, he struck himself as being nothing more than a compromising politician at our expense. So, Zach, do you think that Hillary Clinton is going to be able to get the support from young African-American voters under 30? I think the, the support will be there for Hillary, especially in a system where, you know, local police shootings and police violence are increasingly having, having to be intervened upon by federal bodies like the Department mm-hmm. of Justice. You want a president who at least pays lip service and gives kind of like symbolic support to those causes. I mean, that's just a civil rights necessity. Yeah, We can't expect that from Donald Trump. I guarantee you we cannot uh, and it will not happen. Donald Trump this week called himself the law and order candidate. We must maintain law and order at the highest level or we will cease to have a country. I am the law and order candidate. Here uh, in our newsroom. We said, hmm, this sounds eerily reminiscent of Richard Nixon's 1968 campaign. The wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in the United States of America. And to those who say that law and order is a code word for racism, and here is a reply. If we are to have respect for law in America, we must have laws that deserve respect. Could Trump be able to duplicate? Nixon's success running on this law and order platform? Are we actually comparing Trump to Nixon, Zach? You know, in a moment where the nation is like wrapped up in these massive protests against black people being killed by police, to come out and say you are the law and order candidate is similarly to Nixon. It's coded language for we are going to get these black people under control. Mm -hmm. This is like what we're trying to do. Whether that appeals to a broad swath of the electorate, um, is to be seen. I think it's likely that there will be a broad swath of the electorate that is kind of like appealed to by this rhetoric. Um, we saw it with Nixon. I don't know if it'll, you know, lead to the White House for Trump in the same way. So, Tracy, what do you think about the Trump-Nixon comparison? Do you think that there's some truth here? There are two things that are very different this time. And one is that there is a very substantial presence of libertarians um, within his own party who have been pushing the right on crime agenda that's inconsistent with the in it, the agenda that he's trying to push. So there won't be support for that within his own party. And I also think that um, there's a lot of resonance today with what the Black Lives Matters and protesters are saying and other protesters of police use of force, because it's not just people of color who are experiencing this. There's a Facebook video going around right now of a young 17-year-old white kid who was in a coma and has brain damage. This is about police use of force that people of color experience disproportionately, but we're all experiencing it. And now we're going to move on to our final segment. It's called Noam's Family List. And this is um, the segment where we ask our guests to choose from a list of possible options that our producer came up with with his family over dinner one night. And this is what you can choose from. Fantasy CNN, What's Missing, Tough Questions, and What We've Got Wrong. 
So let's start with you, Tracy. I'll take um, what we've got wrong for $10, Maria. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go. So I think what we've got wrong is that we're focusing too much on particular strategies and tactics that police can be engaging in. For example, you know, focusing on things like de-escalation and the like. And instead, we should be focusing on what Zach said, what police are for and what we expect them to do. Because even if they're engaging in things like de-escalation and the like, they could still be policing in the same way. And we need to stop focusing on people with broken taillights and all of these crazy little violations and think about how we're engaging people in the process of co-production of safety. Terrell. Fantasy CNN, I really want to push back against this notion of giving people who are just completely anti-Black a platform. We like to feel that if we give the person who's pro-cop or the person who may be borderline racist or, in fact, racist a word that we're being objective and we're giving all sides. If I were to produce a segment, one of those things would be to challenge this notion that just because you're giving both sides to an issue that you're going to come up with an outcome that's going to be helpful. Zach. I think I'm going to do what Tracy chose, which is what we're getting wrong. Um, This whole notion of the war on cops, you see this come up over and over again. It seems like an intuitive response to a week that saw five police officers get killed at the same time, which is like obviously devastating and troubling for a number of reasons. Just to put that in some statistical context, um, 2015 was the second safest year for police officers in terms of on-duty fatalities since 1960. And 1960 is the year I'm using because that's when the data started being collected. So it might be all time for all we know. So we're actually living in a time of sort of unprecedented safety for police officers. I think that's some, that's that's some data we need to take into account when the war on cops Um, is used as a talking point. Thank you, Zach. All right. And what's missing for me is not only, you know, these conversations that we're having here that are so powerful, but at the same time, what this is doing to each of us individually and how we are treating ourselves in terms of our own healing and finding a way in which we find the healing, whether it's doing therapy, whether it's connecting with nature, whether it's being with your family, whether it's being in protest or being silent. Um, This is all taking its toll. And I just want to thank everybody for listening and for my dear guests for being here. So thanks to all of you for joining us on In the Thick this week. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Wow, (laughs) that conversation was just incredible. Seriously. And remember, we're going to continue sharing some of our favorite episodes with y'all in the coming weeks. So stick around as we celebrate seven years, seven years of good luck on ITT. And there are some big changes coming at the end of this trip down memory lane. Seven years. Still can't believe it. Yeah. So stay tuned for that announcement. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. Remember, go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It really helps. Remember, you can listen to In The Thick on all major podcast platforms. Check us out on the web at inthethick.org. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show. Like us on El Facebook and tell your friends and family. In The Thick is produced by Noor Saudi, Oscar Fernandez, and our New York Women's Foundation Ignite fellow, Daniela Teo Garzon. Our editorial director is Fernanda Santos. Our audio engineering team is Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, Gabriel Labayas, and JJ Carubin. Our marketing manager is Luis Luna. Thanks to Sofia Sanchez for recording me, while Raul Perez is on vacation. Yay! The music you heard is courtesy of Nacional Kep and ZZK. 
Records. We'll see you on our next episode, dear listener. Thanks for listening. Remember, no te vayas. Ciao. Peace out, y'all. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees.